And please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Come to the last message in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been together in this since mid-August. 30 messages, 32 if you count the 30 messages, and here we come to the last chapter. I've entitled this message, Finally, Love. Love one another. It's clear throughout the final chapter that um, Paul's wrapping a number of things up that he's been teaching throughout the book, and his desire for this church to grow in their love for one another and to continue loving one another, fellowshipping rightly with one another, it's, it's clear that that's his desire as he signs off. So let me read the text together, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, So you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I also, they will accompany me. I will visit or passing through Macedonia, I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me where I go. If I do not want to see you now just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, because a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." Now concerning Paulus, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you've done in love. Now I urge you, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and if they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, be subject to, the, to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortune, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my doors. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings. And the Lord send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I Paul write this greeting. If anyone has no love for the Lord... Let him be accursed. Amen. Picture a father sitting in a living room with his adult children. These adult children should be not only adults in physical appearance, but also in their personal maturity, but they're not. They act like 12-year-olds. No offense, 12-year-olds. You, you be a 12-year-old. But if you're 24 and a 12-year-old, now we got a problem. They act like 12-year-olds. They fight. They are arrogant. They're proud. They're selfish. And the father's going to go away for a time. Maybe he's near death. Maybe he's just traveling abroad somewhere for a time. And the final series of exhortations he has for this living room full of his children is, Love one another. Be united. Work out your differences. Honor one another. 
be mature, love. That's his desire. He walks out of the living room and listens to see if they start fighting now that he's gone or to hear if they're expressing love for one another, maybe apologizing, confessing. Uh, But this is kind of where Paul's at here. He's been writing for 15 chapters so far, telling them, theme of 1 Corinthians, not to think like the world thinks. Don't think the same way the world thinks about idols. Don't think the same way don't think the same way the world thinks about getting all you can out of this world, acting as if there's not another one coming. Don't think like the world thinks. Against one another, propping up your favorite teachers and, and looking down upon other teachers who are being faithful in God. Don't think like the world thinks. And in that, we've seen a key theme is love. If you're going to think differently than the rest of the world thinks as a follower of Christ, as a son or daughter of God, you're going to love. Love's going to be at the forefront of your mind. Love for God, love for others. And so you see love not only expressed in 1 Corinthians 16, permeating it. He wants a few things to happen in this chapter. He wants them to support fellow gospel workers. It's a way of caring for them as they do the work of the Lord. He wants them supporting other saints. He wants Gentile Christians to financially support poor Jewish Christians and to send money. He wants love there, universal church type of love. Next, we'll see that he wants the believers at Corinth to love those that are doing labor among them. We'll see that also in this chapter. And then finally, he wants them to continue this warm fellowship they have. And we'll see how he makes that plea to them, that argument later on. So today, three points for us as we walk through 1 Corinthians 16. Three desires for and loving Christian fellowship. Three desires, these are Paul's desires. Three desires for continued and loving Christian fellowship. And in these three desires that we see that Paul has for this church, we understand that the Holy Spirit is also teaching us here. Three desires the Holy Spirit would have for us to continue in loving fellowship with one another. Now, before I get into the outline, all right, you're ready to go, point number one, I'm ready. I'm going to pause. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not right with God, reconciled with God, before I walk through and teach the Christians in this room about what it means to continue loving one another, I want to say to you, Love from God is available. A God who's been offended by you and us, a God who's been offended still has mercy. And this sinners, and his son came willingly to live a perfect life that these sinners did not live, and to die the death these sinners actually deserved. And so that's what we understand as Christians about the love of God. God loved us, and He sent His Son to forgive us from our sins, die for our sins, take the penalty that we deserve. He rose again, He's alive, and He continues showing His love to us by interceding for us in heaven, praying for us, strengthening us, giving us grace, so that one day, like our dear sister Billy, when we close our eyes on this earth, we'll go home to be with Him because He loved us all the way to the end. And so, Christians are exhorted to love one another 
with that same kind of love that God's given us. So I'm telling you, if you're not right with God, if you haven't been living a life that demonstrates love to Him, obedience to Him, God loves to save sinners. And so I would encourage you, admit your guilt to God, admit your sin, and the one who cries out to God for mercy is heard by God. He hears that cry for mercy and He forgives. So today would be a great day to know the love of God because of Christ Jesus, through the work of Christ Jesus. I always offer this. Hardly anyone ever takes me up on it. If I can answer any more questions about that or talk to you about your soul, I'm going to be right down there at the end of the service. Elders from our church will be down here. Christians are all around you. You can ask anybody more about that. I'd be happy to to talk with you about that. So please take me up on that, okay? I'd love to introduce you to a reconciled relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. Now, Christians, God's shown love to us, right? So it's right that He would expect us to continue loving one another as we fellowship together as a body, as we are Canyon Bible Church of Prescott together. So the first desire Paul has for continued and loving Christian fellowship is this, financial generosity for various needs. We love by giving. We love by helping. Financial generosity for various needs. You see that in verses 1 through 9. Paul's going to instruct the Corinthians to provide for, again, Jewish saints, Jewish Christians somewhere else. So you Corinthians in Corinth in the region of Achaia, I want you to send some of your resources, send some of your money to the struggling Jewish Christians in Judea because there's a famine over there. And your brothers and sisters who you don't know are going hungry. So I'm going to come and take up this collection when I arrive, and you're going to send it to them. But then he also expects that they would also use some of their resources to help him on his way for continued gospel ministry. So you see two two, um, aims that he has for their money, two aims that he has for their giving, one to help saints somewhere else, and two, to continue the gospel work that he's doing. Verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So you see what he's doing. He's saying, I'm coming to you for money to send to the needy saints in Judea. I'm not just asking you. I'm also asking the churches of Galatia. So a number of Gentile churches are contributing to the needs of the Jewish Christians. Right there is a picture of the unity of Christ in His church. Jews didn't really associate with Gentiles, Gentiles with Jews, at least on a peaceable level. But now that we're children of God together, we do. And so Paul calls on them to regularly, first day of the week, purposefully, as each one purposes in his heart, to generously give. Regularly, purposefully, generously give. This is part of what we do as Christians. This has trickled down all the way 2,000 years to the church of God today. So we take a regular collection for needs in the body, for gospel work, to pay those who labor among you, all New Testament realities. So Paul expects that this church would be taking up this offering to help others in need. Verse 3, 
And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So they're going to write back to Paul and say, uh, we're going to send this person with you, these people with you to get this gift to Judea. Now, Paul seems as if it's possible that he would go bring the gift with someone else. We learn elsewhere from Scripture that he, in fact, did go. So it was him, someone who the Corinthians believed was, had a good reputation. They went and brought this gift to the saints in Judea. And then, it's not just that he expects that their resources go to those in need in the body of Christ, the universal church, but also that their resources would go and continue being used for the gospel work that he was doing. Verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Again, it's an expectation that Christians help fuel by their resources the work of the gospel to go out. Verse 7, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, because a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. This is, this is like a number of Paul's letters, where he wants to see the people he's writing to, but he's also saying, but I've also got things going on here, getting the gospel to this place, getting the gospel to that place. And I want to point out something pretty interesting here that I think could be helpful for us today. Notice Paul knows and says that there's an open door in Ephesus. Paul's been made aware that there's a gospel opportunity where he's at in Ephesus. So he's saying, I'm staying here for a time. I'm doing this gospel work in Ephesus because there's an open door for the gospel. And then he says, there's a wide door for effective work open to me, and there are many adversaries. So the wide open door from God doesn't mean there aren't adversaries. He's doing the work in Ephesus, and it wasn't always a welcomed work with everyone in Ephesus. There were adversaries, adversaries from Satan, adversaries that did not want the gospel to permeate the city of Ephesus. I think that's really helpful for us because a lot of times we use the language of open doors in decision-making. And we, we determine an open door to be the path where there's no opposition, smooth sailing, yeah, I prayed, and there was an open door. Nothing is wrong about this decision. Everyone's going to treat me perfectly all the time. I'm going to get all the money I need, and it's just, it's just, it's the open door. Well, that's not how Paul saw it. The door was open because there was a need, and God had providentially allowed him to be there. Sometimes with open doors for ministry, there's a lot of opposition. So let's not read into that, oh, the door's closed. They're hostile to the gospel, so we can't send anyone to that nation. Nope, we can send people to that nation. Maybe difficult, maybe hard, but there's an open door. There's an open door. So Paul knows there's an open door for effective work in Ephesus. He's there. He hopes to get to the Corinthians. But in the meantime, he expects expects that the Corinthian church, out of love in their hearts, will provide for the needs of the poor saints in Judea, and they'll also send, lovingly send, their resources with Paul to do gospel work. So one of Paul's desires for his spiritual children is that they would be financially generous for various needs 
And before I move on to point number two, he talks about visiting them after passing through Macedonia. Just, this is so good. In his next letter that we have, 2 Corinthians 8, he actually says the Macedonians also contributed to that gift financially. So here in 1 Corinthians, he wants to go through Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians, he acknowledges that when he was at Macedonia, they gave, they also gave. And there's something unique about the Macedonians' gift. And, and I want to read this to you because I think it shows the heart of a giver. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Paul writing again later to the church at Corinth, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So I want, I want, to, I want to praise the churches in Macedonia for a moment. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Why are the Macedonians to be commended? They were struggling financially themselves but still wanted to be generous to the needs of those in Judea. And that's why he's commending the Macedonians to the Corinthians. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. It's them saying, Oh, Paul, we heard there was a need in Judea. Here, have this. Oh, guys, I mean, you're, you're struggling yourself. No, 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 actually, take this too. That's what the Macedonians did. And they had to beg Paul to take it. Verse 4, begging us earnestly. That's strong language. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Please let me be a part of helping. You don't have, I mean, you barely have anything. Please let me take part in helping. I write that because, or I talk about that because a lot of times in giving, you're told things in churches like, hey, you just give a little bit and, and you're going to be rich and wealthy. You just wait. Just test God by giving me a bunch of money. Paul highlights the generosity of these poor believers and wanting to give to other poor believers. Why do we highlight that? Because giving is from the heart. It's not to be cajoled. It's not to manipulate you. It's just to say that Christians who've been shown generosity by God Himself through Jesus, His Son, continue to want to show generosity. Christians are generous because the generosities come to them first in Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 8, he actually goes on to say that. He says, Christ came to be generous to us. That, that's the argument that he makes. And so, Paul wants a financial generosity for the needs of those Maybe in other churches, maybe in the, for those who are doing gospel work among them and in other places. And today, I mean, I don't think I need to highlight this to you, that you already, when you give each week, are doing this part of worship, this part of giving. Your needs go to care for people in the body here. They go to care for people in different places around uh, the globe. Think of the students at Flags, or in Flagstaff at Indian Bible College. 
resources go to them to help provide training they need to go and be missionaries. Your resources go down to help support a pastor in Nicaragua and a church down there. Your needs go to help church planters in Rome, the Standridge family, doing work over there. So you are giving and providing needs for not just those who have personal financial needs, but you're also giving to provide for gospel work around the world. So that's a part of what we do here. It's a regular part. Want to hear more about that? Come to the May members meeting, and we'll talk to you all about the resources going different places. But I think here an application for us is to see that part of being a Christian is being generous with our resources, fueling gospel work, caring for the needs of the saints. There's a second desire Paul has for his spiritual children, and it's this. He desires their proper recognition for spiritual leaders their proper recognition, or if you want, their proper response to spiritual leaders. Paul wants them to rightly respond to the people laboring among them. Verses 10 to 18, Paul's going to reference a number of spiritual leaders in these verses and tell the church how to respond to each of them, and it's instructive for us. Verse 10, he starts with Timothy. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now, why would Paul need to say things like, hey, Timothy's coming, don't let anyone despise him. You know why, would Paul, you know why Paul would need to say that to the Corinthian church? Because some in the church probably would despise Timothy. Why? Well, remember early on, chapters 1, chapters 3, chapter 3, there's this struggle in the church. There's this group that says, Apollos is our true pastor. We respond to his ministry. Well, Paul's the one that started this church, humanly speaking. He's the one we should be listening to. No, no, no. Apollos is such a gifted speaker. Well, Paul was the first. There's this fight, and Paul's saying, stop. We're both laboring for the Lord. Stop it. I planted, Apollos watered, The growth is from the Lord. He uses different people. Now, one of Paul's close associates was Timothy. So, picture the Apollos group. Apollos tattoos, Apollos t-shirts, we love Apollos. And then Timothy comes in the door. Oh, that's that's not one of Paul's disciples. That's Paul's disciple. Ugh. Listen to Timothy teaching. I mean, he's young after all. He's not as articulate as Apollos. You can see that happening in the church. So Paul has to write to them, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease. When he walks through that door after doing the work of the Lord, as he comes to get some respite and then to help instruct you, make sure he is at ease. Don't make his work there in Corinth hard for him. Put him at ease because he's doing the work of the Lord. Work of the Lord has been such a theme lately, right, in 1 Corinthians? So he's highlighting someone doing the work of the Lord, and he expects that the church should be welcoming them, making their life easy for a moment. It's hard enough. Paul goes to Ephesus. There's adversaries everywhere. Timothy has adversaries. The adversaries shouldn't be in the church. There's enough outside the church. So let no one despise him, verse 11. Help him on his way in peace. When he goes and leaves you, help him on his way. Certainly would include financial provision and maybe a sack lunch. I don't know. Send him on his way. Make sure he's at peace. Make sure he has what he needs. He's doing the work of the Lord. 
so that he may return to me because I'm expecting him with the brothers. Paul would regularly send Timothy here and there and everywhere, and the church would help provide for that ministry. So stop the petty criticism, stop playing favorites, and help this gospel worker. Help him. Timothy strolls into Corinth and goes to one of the houses, let's say it's a Thursday evening, comes into Corinth and goes into one of their little home Bible studies, and he walks into the first room, and he walks in, and there's people ready to talk about the truth of God and Jesus Christ and spur one another on, and Timothy walks in, and they go, oh, and start whispering among one another, that's not Apollos. I'm, I'm, I don't love Timothy's teaching as I love Apollos's. Look at Timothy's so young. I don't trust all his decisions and whatever it may be. And then Timothy walks to another room and there's a group that says, Timothy, come here, sit down. What do you need? We've been praying for the work that you've been doing in the Lord. How long are you going to be here? When you leave, we want to help send you on your way. Timothy, let us know what you need. Which one do you think God prefers? Which room? It's the second room. This is Paul writing to the church, teaching them something about how to care for gospel workers. And then he talks about Apollos. Now, there, there, there's a, again, there's a debate about Paul and Apollos in this church. They're, they're seen as favorites among one group and another. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulos, I'm of Cephas, Peter. Notice what Paul says at the end of the letter. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. So, so there, there, some of them are looking at Paul's ministry and saying, we don't like that ministry, he's not as articulate. Paul, Apollos is the one that we love. Apollos. Paul is so comfortable as a gospel worker not caring to get the credit, knowing that God is the one that brings the growth, actually tells Apollos, go minister to the Corinthians. Paul's not slandering Apollos. Paul's not trying to keep Apollos away from the Corinthians so that they'll kind of forget about him and then welcome Paul as the hero. Paul doesn't care about any of that. He simply wants the church to be edified. And so he tells Apollos, go to Corinth. Well, it's not Apollos' plan to go to Corinth now, Paul says. He will come when he has opportunity. And then we come to this verse that oftentimes we rip out of its context and just talk about, but notice it in its context. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Here's the context of it. Paul's not at Corinth. Apollos, who is also influential in this church, is not at Corinth. And he's going to bring up the fact that there are some leaders, the household of Stephanus, who evidently are kind of shepherding the group, but they're not Paul and they're not Apollos. So, they're kind of without a pastor, so to speak, for a time. And that's the context where he says, so without me, without Apollos, you all be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. 
Act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Paul has to write that to them because he can't say it to them face to face and help them do that in everyday life. He hopes that in the absence of Christian leaders, now they do have some, they've got the household of Stephanus, but in the absence of Paul, absence of Apollos, that they would stand firm. And we talked about this in the last couple of weeks. They would be watchful, standing firm in the faith. They would be steadfast and immovable, like 1 Corinthians 15, 58. They're not to waver in the faith. They're to remember that what the, the most important thing Paul told them was that Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Stand firm in that. There's a resurrection of the dead. You're going to heaven. He's going to bring you home. Stand firm. Don't waver. Don't let the lust of the flesh take you away from the hope of the gospel. Don't let the things that the world can offer you take you away from the hope of the gospel. Be watchful. Watch your heart. Watch one another's heart. Stay fixed on Christ. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. In the scriptures, when this idea is talked about, it's talking about courage. Be courageous. Why would they need to be courageous? Because all Christians at all times are the remnant in the world, the minority in the world. And the world, in a sense, is controlled by Satan, 2 Corinthians 4.4, the little g god of this world. There's hostility. Paul said there's hostility in Ephesus. So Christians need to be courageous. Act like men. Be strong. Now, that's not a popular thing to say today. Act like a man. Oh, men are so harsh and rude and patriarchal and oppressive. Well, yeah, those are wrong things and those are sinful things. But true manhood has a certain strength that blesses those who that man is leading, blesses those in the family, blesses those in the church. True manhood is a gift to the world, not a problem for the world. And so Paul says, be strong, act like men, let all the you do be done in love. True manhood includes love as well. Strength, watching out for one another, watching out for your own heart, and doing that all because you love those in your care, love others. One writer said, tough courage doesn't squelch love. True biblical manhood is strong, it's courageous, It looks out for the threats around, spiritually speaking, and it also loves. Who's the epitome of this? Jesus Christ, right? Looking out for the threats to his disciples and those around him. Standing, committed to the Father, loving, meek, gentle. Tough, meek, gentle, looking out. This is true manhood. And he's not just talking to the men of the church, too. Don't don't miss that. Women are to be courageous too. All of you act like men. All of you be courageous is what he's saying. Men, women, children in the faith, be courageous. Stand firm, know the threats, care for one another. Let all you do be done in love. Be courageous. It's not easy to be a Christian, but it's the right thing. Jesus is coming again. There's a new heavens, new earth coming. Stand firm. Don't be moved. Verse 15. He's going to talk about some other leaders in their life. 
the people who are giving leadership to that church in the absence of Apollos, in the absence of Paul. Verse 15, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. So Paul's preaching the gospel, 1 Corinthians 18, and Stephanus gets converted, and evidently people in his household get converted. They're the first converts in Achaia in that region, and they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Of course they did. That's what Christians do. They're saved, and it's not just some private thing that happened to them. They start then caring for the church. And evidently, they're in some leadership position. People in the household of Stephanus have some leadership position at the church in Corinth. And he doesn't say, they're just temporary leaders. Apollos and I, we're the real ones you submit to. No. Notice what he says. Be subject to such as these. Be submissive is another word. Follow their lead. Be subject to such as these. And every fellow worker and laborer, perhaps he had Timothy in mind there. He's called Timothy just recently a fellow worker. Some of them might not have wanted to be subject to Timothy. Again, too young, too alienated, or too, too, too connected to Paul. No, be subject to the household of Stephanus and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours, give recognition to such people. Evidently, these three men came to visit Paul, and then were coming back to the church at Corinth, and Paul's saying, I'm so grateful for their presence with me. It was as if they were standing in for you and caring for me, and now I'm sending them back to you and give recognition to them. They, They should be honored by you. Stephanus, again, one of the first converts, evidently left to go and minister to Paul for his time, short-term mission trip, if you will, and also two of his friends, Fortunatus and Achaeus. How would you like to be named Fortunatus, by the way? <laughs> lucky. Hey, Lucky came to visit me, and I'm sending Lucky back to you. I mean, what a great name. Anyway, that's neither here nor there, but I thought it was interesting. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus because they've made up for your absence. They ministered to Paul. They refresh my spirit as well as yours, give recognition to such people. They don't just benefit Paul in their ministry. These are godly men who then go and benefit the church at Corinth. So again, give recognition. Now I want you to notice here in verses 15 to 18, these commands to the church. Be subject to the leaders that are in place right now and every fellow worker. And then finally, give recognition to such people. This is a New Testament reality that sometimes isn't carried out today. Again, I talked a little bit earlier about how people don't like sayings like, be a man today in our culture. Well, sometimes the church culture today doesn't like sayings like, be subject to your leaders, obey your leaders, but it's a New Testament reality. As there are qualified leaders over you, qualified in the Lord because of their character and because of their work, be subject to them. Give recognition to them. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17, and yes, this is in the Bible. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I talk to a number of pastors that don't know anything about this type of joy. There's constantly criticism of this and that, slander, gossip. And these pastors have godly character. They lead, they teach faithfully, 
and they're chewed up and spit out. This is not something Paul wants for gospel workers. It's not something that gospel workers should experience. Well, what if they've got bad character and bad doctrine? There's a place for dealing with that. See 1 Timothy 5, but that's not here. So let's assume they don't have disqualifying character and they are working faithfully for the Lord. Submit to them. Well, I don't like how they're making this ministry decision. Okay. Submit to it. And if you say, well, I don't want to, then I'm going to go talk to your kids and say, if you don't like the decision mom and dad's making, then just do whatever you want. I'm just kidding. I won't do that. I won't do that. (laughs) But let's follow that logic, okay? Submission and obedience and following the lead is a New Testament reality. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a pastor. I'm not saying that because I've got complaints about you. I'm saying it because it's in this chapter. And we go verse by verse for a reason. The Lord is continuing to teach us. There should be a certain joy and a recognition that gospel workers have among their people. And I know that to be the normal pattern in this life and in this church and so do the other elders here. You're a joy to shepherd. Thank you for the privilege of shepherding you. Thank you for your teachability. Thank you for the care that you give us. I mean that on behalf of the other six guys. Thank you very much. But if there are any that need this reminder, please take it to heart. An immature church slices and dices her spiritual leaders. A mature church refreshes them and follows them. This is what Paul wants for Timothy. It's what Paul wants for the household of Stephan, or for Stephanus. It's what he wants in that church. That you continue learning from them, that you'd be subject to them, and that you would give recognition to them, help them, let them do their work among you, care for them. There's a final desire that Paul wants for the Corinthian Christians. Paul desires their warm fellowship with God's family. He wants them to have a certain warmth with one another, a certain care for one another, fellowship. It's a, he wants a sweet fellowship. And it's interesting how he, how he makes this argument in the closing verses. He talks about other people's greeting of them. Notice what he says. The churches of Asia send you greetings. This would have warmed their hearts to hear this read aloud in their church assembly at Corinth. Hey, the churches of Asia really are thinking about you. They're sending their greetings to you. They're sending their hellos to you. They're connected to you. And then he says, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. This couple, if you read the New Testament, they go from place to place to place doing gospel work. They were tent makers like Paul. Maybe they're supporting themselves as they make tents, and they're going around doing this work in different places. And they're not in Corinth, but they have been in Corinth. And he says, they send greetings as well. So the churches in, churches in Asia want to say hello to you. This godly couple wants to say hello to you. They send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Everyone I talk to, people who've been saved through our ministry, they want you to be greeted. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Do you, you see how he talks about different groups of people greeting them and then tells them to greet one another with warm affection? There's a reason he does it in that order. Again, it just reminds us of love. You've been shown love. 
give love. You've been shown greetings from other brothers and sisters. Give warm greetings with other brothers and sisters. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You want to know the application of that? You interested? (laughs) What in the world is he going to say? (laughs) There are cultural expressions of heart attitudes. I would connect this to the head coverings that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 11. A cultural expression in that day of a heart reality. The heart reality was honoring a woman, honoring her husband. So, no, I do not believe head coverings are for today. It was a cultural expression of something that has to be true in every place at all time in the heart. A woman honoring her husband. We looked at that in 1 Corinthians 11. It's similar to this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I don't believe God's going to say, how come you weren't kissing everyone on Sundays at Canyon Bible Church of Prescott? (laughs) Oh, okay, I don't have to do that every Sunday. But you do need to have a heart attitude of greeting one another. This group is more special to you than just anybody walking down Montezuma, downtown. This group means something. These are your brothers and sisters. That's the idea here. And, and if you do hold to the head covering thing and you think that there should be head coverings, that's okay. I, I would simply, and I'm not trying to be funny at all, at what point do you not, or what point do you change from this isn't a cultural thing, all of us are supposed to do the head coverings, to now making the holy kiss a cultural thing? So just be good to think through the consistency there, Okay. Uh, but no, I do not believe this is something that all Christians are demanded to do, to, you know, walk in, grab your bulletin, and just plant one on the other person's lips. <laughs> if you go to Russia, be, be aware. Brothers and sisters will do that. But don't miss the hard attitude here. The word greet is used over and over again in just these four verses. Greetings, hearty greetings, greetings, greet, greet. And then Paul expresses his greeting, my love be with you all. So, a hearty fellowship, a true love for one another when you see one another, that is what he's getting at here, all right? And then again, an interesting verse seemingly out of nowhere. Verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Hey, churches in Asia are greeting you. Prisca and Aquila greeting you. Uh, all the brothers greeting you. Greet one another. If anyone doesn't love the Lord, he's damned. Why does it come there? And again, you know this if you come to this church. We want to understand a passage in its context. Why here? Why here? Let me give you my strong belief as why this is here. And for this, you have to remember the whole book of 1 Corinthians. The Christian church is tempted to be like the world. What is perhaps the number one way this church is like the world, this Corinthian church is like the world? Selfishness. You see that in the Lord's table. You see that in how they deal with one another sexually. They're suing one another. They're playing favorites. It's all about them. Their own spiritual gifts is about themselves and not caring for others. So church at Corinth don't think like the world thinks. Now, what has happened all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians as Paul has used a cursed, damned, warning language aiming it at certain people 
in that assembly at Corinth. Not the whole church, but these little, these little challenges, warnings to certain people in that church. I'll remind you a few of those. Those who try to destroy the church by playing favorites and trying to get, you know, we're Apollos, come with us, and we're Paul. They're destroying the church, chapter 3. Those who destroy churches, chapter 3, will be destroyed by God. That's strong language. So here in 1622, you have a cursed language, damned language. There in chapter 3, hey, don't play favorites. And if there are people who continue in that and they destroy the church, they'll be destroyed by God. So this isn't something new that we've never seen in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5, those engaged in sexual immorality and a gross, horrible form of sexual immorality, they are to be, remember this, handed over to Satan. Let Satan have his way with them. That's the one they're following and obeying anyway. It's judgment language. So 1622 isn't the first time we've heard judgment language. And I'm going to show you what all these things have in common. And then in chapter 6, people suing one another in the church. Again, selfish, self-love, not loving one another, but trying to get something out of the other person. People suing one another is followed up by this verse. Don't you know? the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Again, judgment language in our book. Chapter 15, some people are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. Now they're not loving the rest of the church by teaching them true Christian doctrine. They're lying about the truth that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore so will we. Some are troubling others by denying the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says they don't know God, they are fools. So, 1622 isn't the first time we've heard judgment type of language aimed at certain people who are troubling the church. And so, it's no wonder that at the end of the letter, Paul would say, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Notice, They've been failing to love the church, and Paul equates that with not loving the Lord himself. You love the Lord, you will love his people, and you will not harm them. If anyone does not love the Lord, he'll be accursed. How do you know someone doesn't love the Lord? Because they don't love the people of God. That's what Paul's trying to show here. John tells us the same thing. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So if you're not loving others, you're not loving God. Because when God loves you, then you love him in return. First John's clear about that order. He loved you first, you love him in return. And what will love for him look like? You start to love his children start to love one another. So that's why there's this final, this final warning. He's been giving warnings throughout the book. This final warning, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be damned. Accursed is the language, strong language. So Paul desires warm fellowship with God's family, and this is where he leaves them in the letter. Again, the father gathering the children, listen, 
You all love one another, love those gospel workers out there, love those who are in the family in other places, love one another. You all, there are people over you in the Lord here in this living room. You care for them, submit to them, recognize them. You should have a good relationship with your leaders. And then third and finally, keep greeting one another, keep that warmth with one another, keep the commitment to one another. This is what Paul's saying as he signs off in this letter. When I think of warmth and love, I think of going to my grandma and grandpa's house as a kid growing up. Even in college, I would come home, I would go there, and I mean, that, that was a place of warmth and love. Go in there, maybe coming home from college, uh, for Christmas break, go there for Christmas, greeted by my grandmother at the door, who I love with all my heart, who's now in heaven. But the warmth, I think of the way she taught me, instructed me, then going to see my grandpa, the the love I have for him, also now in heaven, the love I have for him, the warmth, the care, the affection, I knew he was for me. And then going to see my two grandmothers, Nana, we called one of them, and Gigi, great-grandma, we called the other one, knowing their love for me, knowing the comfort I had in their presence. My mom would be there, know her love for me. My Uncle Brian would be there, I know his love for me. Now listen, let me tell you about those six people. They all had their issues, and so do I. (laughs) My sister was there, she has her issues, so do I. We all have our areas of growth and immaturity, but when we were in that house together, There was a love that permeated everything else. That's how the church should be. We all come here, we've got our issues. I don't like this, I don't like that. You said this, you might have done this. Welcome to the family of God. But at some point, love is stronger. Unity in Christ is stronger than those things. Our being sons and daughters of the King means something for how we're gonna work at this love thing with one another. See 1 Corinthians 13. At the end of the day, love needs to remain, permeate, saturate. It's not easy, but this is what, listen, this is what Paul wants for the churches as he signs off, but you know this, brothers and sisters, this is the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul, right? This is what God wants for churches. Warm fellowship with God's family to continue. So love your brothers and sisters, love one another. As we end this book, where we leave it? There's lots to learn. We'll go on to the next book, Lord willing, and we'll keep doing this until the Lord takes us home. We're done with 1 Corinthians now, but let's make sure we get from 1 Corinthians. Let's be different from the rest of the world. The rest of the world is selfish. The rest of the world doesn't love. The rest of the world tries to live for this life only. Let's be different. Let's learn from 1 Corinthians, love one another, live for the next world, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, standing watch, being courageous, letting all that is done be done in love. Now, we need help to do that, don't we? Can't just grit our teeth and become perfect. That's why we rest in the promises of God for us. Paul writes to an immature church, and he believes that they can do this. 
They can be different than the rest of the world. They can love one another. They can do this. The Corinthians can do this. How are the Corinthians going to do this? By the grace of God. So I want to read to you a passage in chapter 1 and some words at the end in chapter 16. These are the bookends of grace so that you can not live like the world and love one another. Listen to this. We went through this passage in August. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. So this church has grace from God. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, you've been given everything you need by the grace of God for right speech and right knowledge. He's given you that grace, church. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Corinthian church, you might look like a mess right now, but you've been given what you need as you wait for the Lord, and He'll sustain you to the end. What will you be like in the end? Guiltless. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why will we stand guiltless on judgment day before Jesus Christ? Chapter 1, verse 9. Because God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We will stand because God is faithful. And then Paul ends his letter telling them to work, stand, be courageous, love one another, all those commands and everything in between 1 through 16. All those commands, and he ends his letter with these words, the grace of God be with you. We will stand, we will obey, we will grow together in maturity because God is gracious. And that's where we'll end. Let's pray. Father, thank you that when you command, when you teach us, when you exhort us, when you rebuke us, you do so. And you've given us the grace to change, the grace to be different, the grace to love one another, to care for one another. So, Father, thank you for your grace. I thank you, Father, for this book, the things it's taught us, the things it's encouraged us to be, the promises that it's held out to us to believe. Thank you for your character shining through this book. Thank you for what it's done in the life of this church. It's done some significant things in the life of this church, Father, and we thank you for that. Now, as we close this one and move to the next, we pray that you would continue to teach us, mature us, grow us, and most of all, let love permeate our lives, love for you and love for one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.